Hello and welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. You're going to want to stay tuned. We're talking with Dr. Scott Hahn, scripture scholar, convert extraordinaire. And we're going to talk to him about not only his new book, Hope to Die, but also about the current coronavirus as a chastisement and what he thinks of what's going on right now. Just before we begin, let me encourage you to like this video, also to hit the subscribe button below this video, and remember to click on the bell when you're done so that you can be informed of all new episodes. You can also subscribe to it at lifesitenews.com under the blog section of John Henry Weston's blog. Dr. Scott Hahn, welcome to the program. It is great to be with you, John Henry. Thanks for having me. It is quite the book, quite a book for our times. It's called Hope to Die, and it's released right now in the middle of our coronavirus crisis. In fact, just as it was launching, uh, we came on to Easter weekend, and we were, of course, everyone at home. Um, give us, if you can start with, the genesis of this, how this happened that you wrote this book, which is so timely. Sure. Um, you must have started it over a year ago, and yet it's released right now, uh, seemingly providentially. How did that come about? Well, it goes back a couple of years. In fact, right before we began to record together, you and I were talking about that authentic reform concert uh, conference in D.C. back in the fall of 2018, sponsored by the Napa Institute. And I was there and I spoke and heard a wonderful talks by others too, Janet Smith, Curtis Martin, Tim Gray, and so on. And at the end of it, near the uh, the tail end of the banquet, I was leaving and uh, a couple friends of mine stopped me and just said, hey, would you ever think about writing a book that deals with death and the body and cremation? And I was thinking to myself, absolutely not. But what I heard coming out of my mouth was, yes, I'd be very open to that. And so when I got into the Uber and went off to the airport, when I finally got to my gate, I turned to my friend and I said, what was I thinking? Why in the world would I give consent to writing a book like that? And he said, well, you know, you and I talked about this a year or two ago. And, you know, I, I, oh. I said, okay, well, it wasn't a book so much as a presentation. And so later that year on the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe in downtown New York City in Manhattan, I gave this talk that came together in the last 24 hours or so, and I was speaking to chaplains, to philosophers, theologians, and ordinary lay people who had a lot more experience about these matters of death than I did. And I don't know exactly where it came from, but three and a half hours later, we just felt like we had shared an enchanted evening discussion filled with all kinds of mm -hmm. insight, most of which had not come from me, but through me from on high. And so... Afterwards, I, I gave some thought to, well, could that become an article or something more? And uh, the two friends approached me and said, you know, would you make it into a book? And I'm like, I, I think I'm game to try. Yeah. And so I spent mm -hmm. most all of 2019 working on this book with my co-author, Emily Stimson Chapman, a dear friend, a former student, and now a collaborator on a variety of projects. And she would stop by and I would dictate into a recorder and kind of feel like I was reliving that experience that one evening in Manhattan. The book came together by December of 2019. I was kind of excited and pleased and proud, and she was too. And as it went, was sent off to the printers, you know, suddenly everything hit in January, but especially the last week of February. It was a leap year, you remember, this year is. And so on the 29th, 
I realized that this coronavirus crisis was something that was epoch making. And so I did something I'd never done before with my 30, 40 plus books. I, I called the printer and I said, stop the presses. I need to rewrite that last chapter. And so I had a sense of timing with this whole book for the last two years, but suddenly I was really shown a sense of divine timing that I had my reasons, but God had his and his, I thought were more poignant, more dramatic, more important. And so I basically rewrote the last chapter in light of this crisis that we're all kind of living through. You know, it's strangely blessed and eerie for us, I suppose. For, for, for me and for my family, it was the lengthiest Lent I have ever known, a strangely blessed and eerie time. But now that we're on the other side of Easter, I am really chomping at the bit to see the mystical body of Christ come out of this tomb, come out of this crisis, mm-hmm. and to rediscover the glory of the, the gospel, most especially with the resurrection of Christ's body. Because what I've discovered in the last couple of years of research and writing and editing is that the resurrection is so much more than what we think. It's so much more than a historical reality, an empty tomb with eyewitnesses. It's so much more than a fulfilled prophecy. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It really is more than the resuscitation of Jesus' corpse like Lazarus experienced. It really is the transfiguration of human life, of human existence. And so God takes what is ours, human nature, in order to give us what is his, and that is our share in divine nature. But most especially, we receive this mystery in the Holy Eucharist, because the Eucharist, we believe, is the real presence of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. But what I've come to see more clearly, and I try to communicate more clearly in this book, is that... uh, It's the same body that was in the upper room on Holy Thursday. It's the same body that was on the cross on Good Friday, buried in the tomb on Holy Saturday. But more specifically, the body of Christ that we receive in the Holy Eucharist is the resurrected body, that which is ascended on high, which is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so this body is not just resuscitated. His innocence is not just vindicated. His humanity is divinized. And it's not just divinized for himself. It is divinizing us. When we receive his body, we get his blood, his soul, but also his divinity to fulfill what we read in Second Peter 1, 4, that we have been made partakers of his divinity and nothing less. We are made sons of God to share in his own sonship and to fulfill that pledge. He said, my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. And then he goes on to say, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Then he concludes by saying, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. Because the Eucharist we receive is his resurrected body. But it's also the Mm -hmm. instrument by which Christ will resurrect our bodies and cause us to share in the joy and the glory that has been his for the last 2,000 years, only for us. It will be 20 trillion years, and that will be the first minute of eternity. This is what we were made for. This is not plan B. This is the gospel according to the Catholic Church, and it's good news that's almost too good to be true unless it's all true, and it is. It is the truth of the gospel, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is, you know, these aren't just the last two articles in the Apostles' Creed. 
This is the finish line. This is the goal. This is the purpose for which every one of us is made, not just to float about as disembodied souls like angels, not just to have a staring contest with God to look at his divine essence for eternity, but to enter into a kind of covenant communion, interpersonal love with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but with all of his sons and daughters who become our brothers and sisters, this will make the happiest vacation the most joyful family reunion look miserable by comparison. And this isn't just religious rhetoric. This is the reality that we profess when we as Catholics recite the creed. We don't pray it too much. We ponder it too little. And now that I've been pondering it much more, I realize you know, there is gold in them thar hills, diamonds and rubies yep. and emeralds as well. I didn't mean to go on so long, but I tell you, it's like yep. rising up within me, like so much fire in my yep. bones, as it were, like Jeremiah. Absolutely. Now, one of the most interesting things with regard to the time that we are in right now is that this essential thing, the giving of Christ's body and blood, is not being made available. I just finished speaking to some uh, COVID-19 patients who have told me they were there suffering, even dying in hospital. And there was a garbage man, a janitor, who came in to clean the receptacle and to wipe down the room. Yet, the priests were forbidden from coming to provide last rites. This, this man who I was speaking to was in danger of death and begging for a priest, but couldn't receive one, couldn't have a priest come in to, best, to give him last rites or anything like that. Didn't die, but survived, but lived to tell this story. And what are your thoughts on the essential nature of the sacraments and, and perhaps getting this provided somehow, at least to the dying who are, are so begging for extreme unction in the final rites? Well, it's a good question. <laughs> To give you an answer, I've got to admit from the outset that I've got a kind of traffic jam at the intersection of my mouth because I've got like four or five or six thoughts that all want to get through. First of all, I want to say I've got six kids, five sons and one daughter, as I always say, one rose and five thorns. And two of my sons are in the seminary studying for the priesthood for the Diocese of Steubenville. So I feel like I've got a lot of skin in the game. The first three have given us 19 grandkids. And so I thank God for all of that. But I also want to express my gratitude to God for the gift of holy orders, because for mortal men to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to transform earthly matter into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the God-man, I mean, wow, talk about using your life well. And so I'm excited for my two sons who are pursuing this priestly vocation. I am grateful for all of the men I have known through the years who are fathers, not in a natural way, but fathers in a supernatural way. I'm a, I'm a father as a breadwinner, but I can't speak the words of consecration and give to my kids the bread of life. And so let's just be grateful for the priests and for the seven sacraments that they do dispense. At the same time, I would say this, that uh, we were all caught off guard and we don't want to jeopardize the lives of our priests or our bishops, obviously. And we don't want to jeopardize the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we ought to avoid any kind of congregating that would put people at risk. At the same time, you know, I'm a father and I long to not only provide for my kids, but to feed them, to protect them, but to make sure that they're fed. And so for me to not have the Holy Eucharist through most of Lent and now through the beginning of Easter is not an easy thing. Like my daughter said to me a few days ago, 
She said, Dad, I had no idea how much I took the holy sacrifice of the Mass for granted. I have never hungered for Holy Communion this much. And I'm like, well, Hannah, you know, so far, so good. Because, I mean, this takes us out of that stage where we take things for granted. You know, where you can almost be unscrupulous and just assuming that you can receive. You know, at the same time, I do wish that our spiritual fathers, our priests, could be more creative in imagining ways to dispense the sacraments instead of simply shutting the doors. I'm not in a position to judge them. You know, that is not my role. That's way beyond my pay grade. But at the same time, as a son of God and as a brother in God's family, I can I can ask our Father in heaven to give to our shepherds, you know, a greater energy to creatively imagine ways to feed the sheep in spite of everything. And so uh, hearing confessions and also giving us Holy Communion and also especially anointing the sick as they approach death, these are matters of some importance and I would say some matters of some urgency as well. But at the end of the day, I want to say, God, preserve our priests, God bless them and help us to really be grateful in serving them for sacrificing so much for us to really grow through the sacraments that they administer. Uh, I I hope I got most of the vehicles through that intersection. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Now, one of the other things that is fascinating in your book is the talk that would be uh, somewhat uh, troublesome from for your uh, former Protestant brothers and sisters, but also for a lot of Catholics who, for whom the idea of praying for the dead is still somewhat foreign. I know they do it, and, and we're supposed to do it, and we say, you know, the innermost prayers for, for their souls and for all the souls of the faithfully departed, etc., etc. But mo- many, I would say most even, even Catholics, don't really think too much about this, and yet you mention it very strongly in your book. Yeah, it's a very important thing. I mean, the souls of the faithful departed who are in purgatory have a joy that exceeds anything we know on earth, but they also experience pain that exceeds anything that we've experienced on earth. And so our suffrages on their behalf are concrete expressions of divine charity far more than we usually realize. When we get to the other side, we're going to wake up and realize, wow, we squandered a lot of opportunities. Now, I would also say to our separated brothers and sisters that even though you don't have 2 Maccabees in your Bible, 2 Maccabees is a reliable narrative that communicates the historical truth that we find in chapter 12, where you have the Jews who are praying for their departed dead. Now, even if that is not inspired in canonical scripture, it's a reliable narrative that shows us the Jewish beliefs that we inherit. And Jews to this day still pray for their dead in every synagogue. Orthodox or conservative. Now, if they're in heaven, they don't need our prayers. If they're in hell, mm-hmm. our prayers won't help. And so if they're in an intermediary state, which they may be, in the Hebrew, that was called Sheol. It's translated into Greek as Hades, the gates of which will not prevail. But Jesus does not confuse Hades with hell because hell is Gehenna, and that is irreversible. Mm-hmm. But Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek is that intermediate netherworld where the souls of the faithful departed go. And our prayers, our sacrifices, our suffrages are not only beneficial to them, 
They are concrete and powerful expressions of divine love that cause us to grow in holiness and also, I think, increases that awareness, that spiritual sensibility, so that when we die, if we should find ourselves there, our kids, our grandkids, our godchildren are going to know enough to offer up suffrages and sacrifices and prayers for our sake as well. This is the communion of saints, not only in heaven and on earth, but under the earth as well. We're not talking about GPS coordinates when we speak of those under the earth, but we're talking about real persons. So when we hear about Holy Saturday, when Jesus descended into Hades, he does so triumphantly, not only to deliver the souls of the faithful departed from the Old Testament shadowy realm, when he ascends into heaven, as Paul states in the Ephesians, he carries captivity captive. In other words, what Christ does is to repopulate heaven, because until the resurrection and the ascension, all of the visions of heaven show us only angels. The only exception is Daniel 7, where Daniel has this vision of what happens after the Son of Man returns to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. Suddenly, we see the saints of the Most High in heaven. Well, that is the prophecy that Christ fulfills, especially in his ascension. And so we have taken for granted for the last 2,000 years something that was almost unthinkable for faithful Jews in the Old Testament, that in heaven, angels and saints stand alongside of each other, offering prayers and songs and sacrifice. What we experience down here that corresponds to that up there is what we call the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I wrote a book called The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven and Earth, which tells all about my exciting discovery of this reality. I mean, the composite of all of the elements that make up our faith present us with a picture of reality that is just too good to be true, unless, of course, it is the gospel truth. And the Catholic gospel took the gospel I believed as a Protestant to an entirely new level. It was not in any way subtracting. It was entirely adding. In fact, it was more like multiplying exponentially. The good news got not only better, but so good that it exceeds our highest hopes and goes beyond our wildest dreams. You know, and so what I want to do in this book is to kind of trace a trajectory from Rome Sweet Home, where I describe our conversion, to the Lamb's Supper, where I discovered that in the Mass, heaven comes to earth and we are raised to heaven to share in the songs and the prayer and the, the praise of all of the angels and saints. But to recognize in this new book called Hope to Die, the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body, I want to basically look at the finish line, how it is that when we cross the finish line, when we enter heaven, we're not home fully and truly until we get our resurrected bodies back. Not like Lazarus got his mortal body back after four days, but much more like Christ got a body back that wasn't just simply a resurrected corpse or a resuscitated body. It was transfigured. It was deified. That's what he has in store for us. And so I think we've got to recognize that our bodies are much more than we realize. They're not just disposable wrappers or cartons that we, we, we kind of you know have for now and then dispose of later. No, our bodies are almost like sacraments of the soul, not like the seven sacraments, but in and so far as our bodies are visible signs of the invisible reality of my soul and your soul, we recognize that the body is much more than what Plato thought of it. You know, the soma is the sema, was the Greek wordplay, that our bodies are like prisons, and that when we die, we escape from the prison. Well, 
That's sort of true, but not really. What Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, is how the perishable will put on the imperishable. The corruptible will put on the incorruptible. That Christ gives to us in the Holy Eucharist nothing less than his own resurrected body. So when I eat ordinary food in this life, I assimilate it to my body. When we receive Holy Communion, Christ assimilates us to his body. And so it's sort of the reverse of the natural process. And that's how Christ will fulfill that pledge in John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. Because the flesh and the blood that we share in Holy Communion is his resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity. It becomes the means by which our bodies are going to be eventually resurrected like his. And even now, our bodies will be assimilated to his body so that we'll have the power of love, the Holy Spirit, so that all of the little ordinary things I do and that you do at home with our family, at work with our co-workers, all of these things take on an extraordinary meaning, a value that exceeds anything they would have on their own precisely because this communion with Christ is so real. I mean, I do believe that this crisis is a wake-up call to see what all of us have at times taken for granted, but not only to kind of be more grateful, but to seize the opportunity and reappropriate these sacred mysteries and realize we're not sure of most of the things that hover around this virus, but what we are 100% certain of are the sacred mysteries that constitute a reality that exceeds this world, even at its best. And so I would just say, Lord, increase our faith, increase the endurance of hope, purify and perfect this charity, most especially in the sacrament of your love, which is the Holy Eucharist. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on and on, but you know, it's it's sort of like a backlog of stuff that's been within me, not just since I became yep. a Catholic some 34 years ago or when I wrote Lamb Supper 20 years ago. But I, I just believe that this is why I'm on the planet and you are too, to discover the things that are going to get us home to heaven. But we're not going to be like disembodied angels. We're going to have our bodies back and we're going to experience the first 10 trillion years of heaven in such a way it will make the happiest homecoming, the most joyful family reunion, look like sheer misery in comparison to the happiness that we will have that will bless God our Father more than we can possibly realize. Yeah, one of the beautiful uh chapters in your book looks at and i'd really encourage people to read it if and only for this you have this incredible uh, depiction of heaven you're, you're working off of saint thomas aquinas but it actually reminded me right away of c.s lewis's uh, the final battle where he sort of has this description of a heavenly vision and you have that uh, elucidated in your book through thomas aquinas's words um just absolutely beautiful maybe you can describe that a little bit sure i would love to john henry you know I am a, a, a devoted student of St. Thomas Aquinas. He is my favorite theologian, uh, next to St. Paul, who I think is his favorite theologian. And the Summa Theologiae is like my favorite work. It's not always easy, but it's always rich. And so I draw from the section where he describes the resurrected body, you know, the three qualities that all resurrected bodies will share in terms of quality, identity, and integrity. But the four properties that those who are resurrected into glory will share, you can summarize this with the acrostic Isaac, I-S-A-C, 
I stands for impassibility because our bodies will no longer be able to suffer, much less die. S stands for subtlety because our bodies are not going to be weighed down at all. A stands for agility because the power of our mobility will make it look like, you know, the Incredible Hulk is a static figure. And then the, the, the C stands for clarity because we're going to be able to communicate our thoughts, our love to each other in a way that is so utterly clear. You know, if we were ethereal beings, pure spirits like angels, we would not lack any ability. But when we get our resurrected bodies back, the angels are going to stare in wonder and awe at what God has done through the incarnation of Christ, his son, through the paschal mystery of his death and resurrection, and how his resurrection body becomes the source of all this glory that ends up being downloaded into our dead bodies so that our dead bodies are resurrected and raised to a level that exceeds our highest hopes. You know, we, we hmm. all seem to have a kind of love-hate relationship with our body. Either we indulge it too much, or when we feel sick or weak or tired, we just kind of resent the fact that we are weighed down by these mortal frames. But what we see is what St. Paul describes as a kind of seed that is sown perishable, but is raised imperishable. And he's obviously echoing our word, our Lord's words in John 12, that unless this grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, obviously, the fruit that is born by a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dies, the edible form is what we would call bread. And this points to the bread of life, the Holy Eucharist, Christ's resurrected mm -hmm. body. Just as the disciples back in the first century were empowered by the Spirit to recognize the resurrected Lord and to testify to the risen Savior, there's really a sense in which we are the same thing. We are disciples called to be apostles, to bear witness to the risen Savior. And where do we find him? Not just on the other side of the tomb, but in the tabernacle, on our altars, mm -hmm. upon that patent, on my tongue and yours. The Eucharist is the risen Savior. And we can testify to the real presence of the resurrected Lord of Lords and the King of Glory because when we get to the other side of heaven, we're going to discover that his body does not possess more glory in the end than it possesses now. We just can't see the glory of the resurrected Lord except through the eyes of faith. But when we get to the other side, we're not just going to see with our resurrected eyes what the glorified body of Christ is. We're going to see with our glorified eyes what our own resurrected bodies are as well. This good news is more than our world can contain. Like new wine that bursts old wineskins, we have got to let the lion of the Catholic faith out of his cage and allow the gospel to be roared. Because I tell you, you know, we have been taking a whole lot of grace for granted. And I'm sorry, I do feel like an ocean being squeezed through a funnel right now, but that's what it feels like even 34 years after I entered into this Catholic faith. I knew it was true back then, but I got to tell you, 34 years later, it is more powerful and more meaningful and more beautiful than I could realize back then or that I can express right now. But again, John Henry, mm -hmm. thanks for another good question. And, and, and if you've got another one, still fire away. <laughs> I do, because now you're just talking about evangelization, the need to sort of let go of this lion. Really, like perhaps never before in history, we have this opportunity. I'd say during world war and crises like that, yeah. even during regular war, more people in society pay attention to the four last things, to death, death judgment, heaven and hell. 
And today, like with your book's timing, but more people are paying attention to the four last things now. And I think your book adds to that sense, but also the ability for people to reach out and evangelize. I think you're right. You know, 9-11 did that in a day, but a month later, it was practically over and done. Whereas this crisis is lasting days, weeks, and now months. And it's forcing us to recognize not only the inevitability of our suffering and death, but there is also a sense in which we can recognize what God wants to do with it. You know, we have such an inordinate fear of suffering and dying. And that's understandable. But at the same time, what we can hear from the lips of our Lord in the words of the gospel is that there is life that we love, rightly, and that's the gift of life and it's sacred. But there's another life that is not merely human and natural, but divine and supernatural. And that isn't less valuable, but infinitely more valuable. And so when Jesus tells the people, Jairus' daughter is just asleep, and they suddenly turn on him and begin jeering, it isn't because he hadn't gotten adequate medical training. No, just like Lazarus, when he says to the disciples, he's sleeping. Well, in that case, he'll wake up. No, he's dead. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? Because what you know to be death, what you fear so much as death, I see as a kind of sleep. What you don't dread enough is that kind of spiritual death that you commit by misusing your freedom. It's called mortal sin. This is a wake-up call. You go back to the beginning and you look at our first parents and what God gave to them. In Genesis 2, verse 7, God took the dust from the ground and made our first father, but then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so that the first breath that the first man drew was not just air or oxygen like the animals were breathing. It was God's breath. It was the Holy Spirit. He had supernatural life or what we call sanctifying grace. And so when God says 10 verses later in Genesis 2, 17, the day you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will surely die. He wasn't issuing an idle threat that he didn't follow through on. He wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about mortal sin. First John 5, 17, the sin unto death, thanatos, the same word that is used there in Genesis 2, 17. When our first parents committed original sin, they committed spiritual suicide. They forfeited life that was not just natural, but supernatural, not just human, but divine. They experienced a death that was not merely metaphorical, but much more of a death than a bullet to the brain. They lost a life that is eternal and infinitely more valuable than our own finite human life. So when we get original sin, which we contract, we don't commit. We're not born depraved, like I used to think as a Protestant, but we are born deprived of the divine life that our first parents had, but then forfeited. That's why in baptism, when we get that life back, St. Paul can describe it in Romans 6 as our sharing in Jesus' death and resurrection. Because in the waters of baptism, an infant or an adult is resurrected more than Lazarus was after four days. He got his physical body back. He got his own natural human life. But in baptism, we get the supernatural life that is divine and eternal that our first parents forfeited. This is why Paul calls Christ the new Adam, the last Adam, because he not only did what Adam should have done, he undid what Adam did for all of his progeny. And again, this is how the Bible and Catholic doctrine come together like nitroglycerin and explode in a luminous way and show us this is not plan B. This is the only thing for which every single man, woman, and child was made. 
and we've been preoccupied by the stock market, you know, or by the NFL. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big Steeler fan, but I'm a bigger <laughs> fan of the Catholic gospel because, you know, my my wife, she loves bargains, but you'll never find a greater deal than what Christ has done. I love competition, but you'll never find a more exciting victory than what Christ has won. We have got to get this lion out of his cage and re-evangelize ourselves in order to re-evangelize this world. Because I tell you, this is the one thing for which every single man, woman, and child was made. For them to be deprived of the fullness and excitement and the beauty of the Catholic gospel is no small injustice. We owe it to Christ and we owe it to all of our brothers and sisters to share the fullness of the faith in all of its beauty. And again, I feel like, you know, uh, <laughs> an ocean through a funnel, but still, you know, I, I just, well, I really believe great. that this is the moment that we should be seizing. It is, it is. Now, you've mentioned that this is a sort of wake-up call from God. The bishops, various bishops, Bishop Snyder, Cardinal Burke, and Archbishop Vigano, have mentioned that this is some kind of a chastisement. Um, scripturally, that seems to fit. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, when people ask, is this a divine punishment? You know, that's a loaded question. It's also a complicated question. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say, is God getting even with us? Is God getting back at us? No, God is trying to get us back to himself. That's the purpose of punishment. So is this a punishment? Well, yeah. And why? Because we have sinned. It isn't their fault, their most grievous fault. It's ours. It's mine. And so when you read the penitential prayer of the prophet Daniel in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, you don't see him pointing his prophetic finger at all of these sinful Israelites. He's basically saying, we have grievously sinned. To us belongs this confusion. And so he's begging God for mercy, but not for them, but for himself and for all of us. And so I would say, you know, we've got to see that God is a loving father. But I tried to be that, too, with my six kids. And so when I punished my six kids, you know, I, I didn't punish the neighbor's kids. And even when it was more their fault, I punished my kids, but I didn't punish them because I stopped loving them or I started loving them less and less. No, I punished my kids because they're my kids and because I love them. Hebrews 12 explains this, that if you go unpunished when you sin seriously, that proves you're an illegitimate child, which we hope we're not. And so does God punish us? Yes, but it's restorative. It's redemptive. It purifies us. Once we realize that, we'll understand what Paul is describing in Romans 1.18. When he speaks of the wrath of God that is unveiled from heaven against all ungodliness, he's not talking about, you know, earthquakes and famines and, you know, all sorts of uh, volcanic action. And this, you know, three times Paul says that the form God's wrath takes when it's unveiled from heaven is found in Romans 1, verse 22, verse 24, and 26. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God's wrath is when he lets us have what we want, especially when it's contrary to what he commands. God's mercy is when God gives us what we need, whether it's a virus, an epidemic, an earthquake, or a, a volcano, or a cop pulling us over and giving us a DUI, when we are finally forced to accept responsibility for all of our misused freedom, that is not wrath, that is mercy, that is love. Mm -hmm. And it usually comes wrapped in what feels like a punishment. When I punished my kids, yeah. I didn't punish them perfectly like God does. And my kids didn't respond perfectly. 
you know, they didn't feel the love, you might say, but they wake up and they grow up and they realize that those who go unpunished don't end up more righteous, more reliable, more trustworthy. And so God wants to make us saints, not spoiled brats. And so if we recognize that this is a moment of grace, a season of mercy, we can say, not with a guilty conscience, but like a heart that is set free by the medicine of God's mercy, we have sinned. I have sinned through my own fault, through my own grievous fault. God is not willing to forgive us. He was dying on the cross to do so. He wants to forgive us and heal us more than we want him to. And he's capable of healing us more than we can imagine he can do. So if we just simply avail ourselves of his mercy, he can heal us more than we could possibly ask him to. But again, this is a season of mercy. This is a time of grace. And so instead of running from God and feeling a fear that comes from, you know, abject servility, as sons and daughters who have willfully rebelled, we ought to just kind of come to him like the prodigal son and expect to be forgiven, but also wait until we find out how much more he can heal us than we realized. That amazing uh, sort of juxtaposition of, of mercy and justice is something that you mentioned in 2018 as well. While we were at the Napa conference and the discussion yeah. was around the abuse crisis, the cover-up of bishops, you mentioned something very challenging. You you talked about how the the those guilty of cover-up, it would be merciful to even excommunicate them. Uh, if you can get into that a little bit, because it, it talks about the same... Uh, um, issue of mercy versus justice. Oh, I remember that talk vividly because, you know, at the time we had a cardinal who was uh, very influential, very powerful, and he was also a predator and a protector of other predators among bishops and priests and one who promoted them in spite of their predation, you know, and he'd already been kind of stripped of his cardinal status. And now people were speculating as to whether he should be laicized or not. And I'm like, seriously, you want to take a cardinal archbishop who was a predator of young men and a promoter of other predators who protected them and laicize him? What does that say about your view of lay people? I mean, I thought Vatican II renewed that sense of the universal call to holiness, not just for the clergy and the religious, but for all the laity that God calls mm -hmm. us to become saints as well. So if such a sinner as he should be reduced to lay status, that telegraphs what you really think about lay people. And I don't think you mean what you are saying. I don't think that word means what you think it means. You know, like inconceivable in the movie Princess Bride, laity. No, for our sake and for his, he needed to be excommunicated. Not to get even, yeah. not to get back at him, but to get him back into the confessional. You know, so that he, like us, could receive the medicine of mercy and in spite of everything, fulfill what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 7, where there is a man who is guilty of maternal incest, who's attending the congregation every Sunday there in Corinth and receiving Holy Communion. He's like, you know, are you kidding? For his sake, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that on the day of the Lord Jesus, his soul may be saved. For his own spiritual salvation for his own spiritual sake. Please don't allow him to desecrate the Holy Eucharist again. And 
Reluctantly, the Corinthians eventually got around to doing that. And when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's addressing the question that the Corinthians are raising. Now that we did it, we excluded him from communion. Now that he is sorry, what should we do? And Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 is, are you serious? That was the whole point of the punishment. You should welcome him back as a prodigal brother and celebrate his own reconciliation. You know, and so excommunication is a kind of redemptive instrument. You know, do people understand it? No, they don't understand God's punishments in the first place. They tend to think of God as a kind of divine ogre, that his holiness is something to be feared. No, it is to be welcomed. It's the only way we can become holy ourselves. But at the same time, I think we have got to rethink almost everything from the ground up to realize that this Catholic faith is the only thing that will make sense out of our lives and our world and our own sins and the sinfulness of this world. And I believe that's exactly what Archbishop Vigano was getting at, as well as Cardinal Burke. And I say Archbishop Schneider's book, you know, has opened my eyes to this as much as anything as I've ever read. So thank you for pointing to those three good shepherds. There are a lot of others as, as well, thank God, but I'm not sure there are anyone who has been shepherding the flock as courageously as those three. Beautiful. And I think that is really the point of your book, the turnaround in vision of death itself, so that we see in it the hope to die, the hope yeah. for eternal life, the only crossing way into that life, uh, the beauty, if you will, of death in that, in that way of looking at it. You know, that is so important. Important. I'm glad you put it that way. You know, it not only makes sense out of why Jesus got the diagnosis wrong with Jairus's daughter and Lazarus, but why he gets it right when it comes to dying in a state of grace, following Jesus, not only watching him take up his cross, but then watching him as he not only bears a cross for us, but bestows one on each of us every day. You know, we tend to view Calvary in a single lens, that that is a sacrifice. And as I point out in the book, you know, Calvary would not have been seen as a sacrifice by anybody there on Good Friday, not even his most faithful disciples. It was a Roman execution. For it to be a sacrifice, it had to take place in the Jerusalem temple on top of an altar. So the question is, how did a Roman execution get turned into a sacrifice, one so holy and supreme that it retired all the animals that were offered in the Old Testament Jerusalem temple. And the only way to answer that question is by looking at Good Friday in the light of what Jesus did on Holy Thursday. He didn't just celebrate the Passover one last time. He fulfilled it as the Lamb of God, but he fulfilled it by transforming the Passover of the Old Covenant into the new Passover. And what was the Passover in the Old Covenant? It wasn't just a meal. Just ask any lamb if he could talk, he'd tell you. It is primarily a sacrifice. And if that's true in the old, it's not less but more true in the new, where the Lamb of God is not some irrational animal who has his throat slashed and his body roasted and then consumed. No, Christ isn't losing his life. He's laying it down. And the proof of that, is the words that he speaks, this is my body which will be given up for you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant poured out for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, you know. That is not just rhetoric. That is not just ritual. There was a reality that Jesus initiated there by instituting the Eucharist. And if the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. 
But if the Eucharist is, in fact, the Passover, the new covenant, that's where the sacrifice begins. And then you can see that Calvary is where the sacrifice is consummated. They're one and the same sacrifice. And if the Eucharist is what transformed the execution into the supreme sacrifice, Easter Sunday is what transforms that sacrifice into the blessed sacrament of the Holy Eucharist that we celebrate in the holy sacrifice of the Mass because his body is raised, it's ascended, it's enthroned on high where he is not just the King of Kings, he is the royal high priest who's offering in a heavenly liturgy what we receive in this earthly Mass every single time we go. And so the Paschal Mystery is the memorial of his death and resurrection. The memorial is the first day of the Triduum, Holy Thursday. The death is obviously Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday is the memorial of his death and resurrection, because in every Mass, what we commemorate, what we representate, what we represent is exactly his death, no longer as the loss of life. It is the gift of life. He wasn't the victim of Roman violence and injustice and cruelty on Friday. He was the victim of divine love and mercy on Holy Thursday. The Eucharist is what transformed my understanding of Jesus' death, not as bearing the brunt of God's wrath, but as revealing the depth of his love. He wasn't losing his life. He was making it a gift of love and salvation to redeem the world. When the human race did its very worst against God, God turned around and did his very best. The single greatest crime of all history is the crucifixion of God's beloved son. The single greatest grace of salvation history is when God took the greatest crime and made it the greatest gift for the redemption of the whole human race. This is more than making lemonade out of lemon. You know, this is God doing the best with our worst. His strength made perfect in our weakness, the light of his love shining in the darkness of our sinfulness. And not just back in the first century, but right now in the 21st century, if we will allow God to shine his light, we're going to seize this moment and realize that the stock market is not unimportant and professional baseball isn't either. But all of these natural joys pale infinitely in comparison to the sacred mysteries that constitute not only our faith, but will reconstitute sinners like us and make us saints and nothing less and not just disembodied souls, but we're going to get our bodies back and the lowest body in heaven will be more beautiful than Miss Universe could ever be on this side of the veil. And this is just doing the math. I mean, this is not kind of exaggerated rhetoric. This is simply deducing from the sacred mysteries the conclusions that we ought to be contemplating for as long as we have time, life, and breath on this planet. I don't feel strongly Absolutely about any beautiful. of this stuff, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Dr. Scott Hunt, thank you so very much for being with oh, us on the John, John Henry, Henry What a show. delight. What a privilege. What a joy. And I think that uh, God, uh, as, as you said, uh, will, will make straight with crooked lines. And these coronavirus times are, are surely a hardship, but I'm sure he will turn them into uh, something glorious for his people. God always, um, everything works for good for those who love him. And uh, I know you love him very much. Oh, Lord, and I know many prayer. of our viewers do. Thank you very much, Scott, for being with us. May God bless you. Thank and you. God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Excellent. Hello, this is John Henry Weston. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the John Henry Weston Show YouTube channel if you haven't already done so.
There you will find all the past episodes and much more. Thanks again for watching, and may God bless you.